Hey, welcome City Light U. Uh, my name is Andrew. I am one of the leaders here. Uh, I'm excited that you guys are here. Oh, I don't need stands anymore. Well, Aaron, I'm going to borrow that. But anyway, okay, so I'm excited that you guys are here. I'm excited uh, to be back. I don't know if you guys have been coming for a while. Uh, I haven't actually been able to be up here with you guys through just some different stuff. And so it is exciting to be back with you, to be looking at God's Word together. Uh, but I do have to say, man, I've gotten, uh, you know, the last five, six, seven weeks or so uh, to just be listening through this and processing through this with you guys uh, from, you know, Clay and McGill and Josh and Trevor and anybody else who's preached. And I've loved going through this series. Like, this has been really good for my soul. You know, we've been praying throughout this semester that uh, it would be good for you guys. Um, and so what I want to do before we get into Hebrews chapter 9 tonight, is give you just a very quick overview. Because uh, where we're at in the book is uh, kind of essential. We've got to remember what this preacher has been preaching about if we can really understand our text today. And so, um, you know, like I said, this is, a, this is most likely a sermon that was given. If, if you've uh, never read Hebrews before and you read it and it might sound a little bit different, uh, most people think that this is actually a sermon that was given Uh, And what his hope is, is that this church, this church of Hebrews, former Jewish people, um, that they would really endure in the faith till the end. Throughout Throughout the whole book, we're seeing him make a plea to cling to Jesus. And what he's going to say is that, that really Jesus is greater than anything else you could put your hope in. And so we've seen that from chapter 1 to to chapter 8 so far, that he is more superior than the angels, that he is better than any prophet or man that has lived, that he is the greater rest for his people. And then from kind of chapter 4 on, we've really seen that he's this, this greater high priest, this greater mediator for us before God, and that that he's the, the greater high priest because he offers a, a greater sacrifice because he's fully God but still fully man. That he's a greater high priest because he offers a greater refuge that we get to rest in and cling to. That he's a greater high priest because he didn't come through the earthly line through Aaron of priests, but he actually came through a, a heavenly line, a different line that was prophesied that he would come through. That he was the the greater high priest because the covenant or the promise that he mediates is a far better covenant. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that, that he is greater in every way. Why should we cling to him? Because he is greater in every facet. And so last week, Trevor talked about this covenant idea. And now he's going to transition a little bit into chapter Nine And so uh, let me pray again just for us really quick, and then we'll jump in to tonight's text. Father God, I pray uh, for your grace tonight. Uh, it is a long text. It is a packed text. There are, are beautiful things. There are difficult things. But God, I pray that you would give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach this, uh, that you would have compassion and mercy on us to grant us understanding and transformation from this text. God, we trust in you, we believe you, and we believe what you want to do in us. And so God, be with us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to start uh, by asking you guys maybe kind of an odd question. 
I want you guys to think, do you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty? Right? And as I, as I say that, I want you to think through what are the, what are the things that kind of pop into your mind? What are the, the emotions that kind of stir up when I ask you about feeling guilt? You know, I know it's kind of an odd question, but I think it, it invokes kind of an interesting response in us. And a lot of you may be different. Some of you, you know, I ask that if you feel guilty and you immediately think of something that you just did earlier today, right? Something wrong that just like popped into your mind that you can think of. Maybe, maybe a few of you even kind of wanted to go on the offensive and you didn't really like that I even asked that question, that some walls kind of went up and you said, man, how dare you ask that? What, what are you asking this question for, right? You don't really want to deal with guilt and so you just kind of go on the offensive right away. Maybe some others of you had the thought, like, oh crap, what does he know, right? Have you ever had that thought? Like, I'm, so I've been married for almost two years, and I, I live fairly transparently, I like to think, with my wife. Like, there's not much that I do that she doesn't know. But every once in a while, you know, she'll say, like, hey, we need to talk. And that first thought comes into my mind of, like, what did she find out, right? Like, what, what have I done? How did she figure that out, right? Like, have you guys ever thought that? Maybe a boss or a parent has said, hey, we need to talk. And you begin tracking through what could they have found out that I did, right? It's a sense of guilt that kind of stirs up inside of us. Well, tonight, I, I want us to think about and look at this idea of guilt, you know, oftentimes how we describe this is we would say, you know, that we have a, a conscience, and that if we do something wrong, we would say, man, that we have a guilty conscience. It's that, that deep down kind of gut level voice that's, that's revealing and speaking to you, saying that you've done something wrong. It's revealing to you that there's some sort of guilt in you. Sometimes it's very apparent, other times it's quite hidden for a while. But I, what I think is true in every person is that to some extent we have felt this guilt. We have seen or felt this guilty conscience. I mean, we've said this before. Nobody in this room, nobody really in the world in their right mind is going to say they're perfect, right? So if you don't say you're perfect, then therefore you're saying there's some sort of guilt in you. There's something that you have done wrong. But even more than that, I think a lot of us often frequently live under the weight of guilt. We frequently recognize that we consistently do things wrong, something bad, or, or what we hear would say the Bible identifies as sin, right? That, that stirs up some guilt inside of us. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what exactly you've done or where you're from or anything, we all have experienced this and we all feel guilt. Now tonight, as we approach Hebrews 9, the author, I think, is going to show us that that guilty conscience that we all have, that we have felt that, that that guilty conscience actually reveals our condemnation before God. I know that's kind of a drastic statement, but I think what he's going to explain is that that guilty conscience that, that you have felt, or that maybe you feel even tonight as I'm talking about this, is a major problem that has to be dealt with. That that guilt is a big deal. And I think what he's going to say is that all of us know that. All of us try to find ways to appease that, make us feel a little better, appease that conscience. 
but that really there's a way that God has provided to cleanse that conscience forever. So tonight, Hebrews 9, we're going to look at how do we rid our record of guilt and and the conscience of guilt. I think we're going to see this. We're going to split the text kind of into two parts. In the first half, I think the the preacher is going to explain our need for a greater cleansing. And then he's going to explain the offering of greater blood. Okay, So there's a need for greater cleansing and there's an offering of greater blood. Now I know those terms might seem, uh, I don't know, outdated or like we don't use them or drastic or whatever, but, but just track with me. Two points, greater cleansing and greater blood. And lastly, before we get into the text, I do want to say this. I, I had a burden as I was working through this text uh, over the last day or two that I, I want us to remember that the Word of God, it's, it's not simply a, a history lesson or information to fill our minds with. You know, as we approach texts like this, I understand it's 28 verses of a lot of references to things we don't know anything about, if we're just honest. Like, a lot of Leviticus, a lot of Exodus, a lot of things that they know that we don't know. And I know it's easy to approach these things and just get overwhelmed, get confused, and just kind of fill our minds. But, but see, like you, we have to remember that the Word of God isn't just to fill our heads, it is to change us. The Spirit of God speaks through His Word to change and transform us. And so tonight, I don't want this to just be a, a lesson about the sacrificial system of old. But whatever that was, in the very beginning, when you had that idea of guilt, whether it's something big, whether it's just a, a weight that you feel, whatever that is, I, I want that out in front of us tonight. I want you to, as hard as it may be, keep that thing in the forefront Because I believe this text doesn't just speak of days of old, but it actually can speak into how the gospel can free us from that. That we need to be, uh, that we need to get rid of that guilt. And I think this text actually explains how that happens. And so keep that in the forefront. Now, go Hebrews chapter 9, if you're not there already. I'm going to be kind of bouncing around quite a bit, and so uh, have your Bible or your phone open to this, and I'm going to just try to throw out numbers as I'm saying things, but just kind of track with me, Um, and it is long, and so what I would ask is, you know, in your city groups and throughout this week, just be reading through this a couple times and kind of soak it in, because we won't be able to get to everything tonight, but Hebrews chapter 9, I want to start just with the first, uh, just the first verse. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. So, remember I said we're, we're kind of building off of chapter 8 now. So he immediately says there, okay, now, he's referring to the first covenant. Okay, and what, what all we heard about last week was this chapter 8, this idea of there was an old covenant and there was an old way of doing things. And then in 8.13, it says, But that one is obsolete, and there's a new way now. There's a new covenant that God has ushered in. And so what we're going to see in the first ten verses of chapter 9 is him kind of going back and explaining the Old Testament, explaining the Old Testament sacrificial system. So he's going to show us that in the Old Covenant, there was one way of sacrificing and dealing with this, but but that only provides a, a need for something else. So again, as you look through these first 10 verses, uh, what this is going to show is a sacrificial system that was set up 
by God. Now, in verses 2 through 5, we see uh, this tent or this tabernacle um, that, the, uh, that they explain. I think we have a picture of it to kind of give a little bit of a visual. Um, so this is uh, what is called the, the tent or the tabernacle. And what we see is there was kind of a, an outer court. There was this tent then that's the holy place. And within that, we find what's called the, the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, in our text, what he's going to do is he's going to explain kind of this scene for us. And so just kind of get an image of that in our mind. I know it's confusing as you read through like incense and lampstands and staffs and manna and all this stuff. But for simplicity's sake, just kind of get this in your mind that this was the place where God actually dwelt among his people. So there was an actual like manifestation of God's glory that dwelt here in the most holy place. So what we see in uh, even verses 6 and 7 is that in the, there's people could go in the outer court close to where God is. And in verse 6 it talks about that there's regular rituals and sacrifices we know that are done like daily in the holy place. But no sinful man could actually enter into the most holy place except for once a year. We see this in verse 7. He says, But into the second, the most holy place, only the high priest goes and he but once a year. So what we see is that they could be sacrificing kind of day in and day out for their sins, bring offerings and do this. But because of God's utter holiness, perfection, and glory, sinful men and women could not actually enter into his presence without dying. So think about that. This is how drastic God's glory and our sin is. That when his actual presence was here on earth, that, that we could not enter in without dying immediately because of our sin. But once a year, they had what was called the the Day of Atonement. So this refers, in verse 7, all the way back to Leviticus chapter 16. If you've never read that, write it down. Go read it later this week. It is like, I know Leviticus is hard to read, but this is just like gospel everywhere. So go read Leviticus 16 later. But this is essentially what the Day of Atonement is. Once a year, the high priest would come and he would be able to enter the most holy place. Now remember, because he himself was not perfect and he was a sinner, first he had to shed blood to to make an atonement for his sin so that he could enter. And then he would take two goats and the first one he would sacrifice. He would cut, he would drain the blood. And so just think about this place that nobody could enter. So you every year are killing animals and just leaving blood and stuff. It's like grotesque. But he's shedding blood here. And that was the sacrifice for the sins of the people of God. So once a year, they would shed this blood, and that would appease God for one more year. Okay, So every year they had to do this. They sacrificed, shed the blood, and then they would take a second goat. The high priest would lay its hands on this goat, confess the sins of God's people onto this goat. Then they would lead it out into the wilderness, remove it from the people of God forever. Now what that was symbolizing is the sacrifice needed to be made to forgive God's people of their sin and 
once that sacrifice has been made, the removal of the sin of God's people from them. So what we see is the sacrifice of, of, to forgive and the removal of sin. This is the day of atonement. Now, what we see then in the Old Testament is this consistent, repeated, ritual sacrifice, whether it's daily or once a year, to appease the conscience of people. That they would do this in order that God's wrath would not come on them yet, and that it would kind of hold God off for another year. But the problem comes in verse 9. The end of verse 9, he says, According to this arrangement, this way of doing things, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So what the author's pointing out here is, hey, that sacrificial system was there, and it was there to appease God's wrath for a little while. But the problem is that you're going to keep on sinning and that that guilt that is deep down inside that actually marks you not just as someone who has sinned but as guilty before a holy God cannot be uh, appeased or fully forgiven through the blood of goats and bulls. What he's saying is, hey, this covenant, this was just kind of the, this was the opening act. This was to show us something that was to come later, but this wasn't the end in and of itself. Now, I know that as we walk through these 10 verses, it's easy to think, okay, that's really nice, but I've never gone to church to cut open a goat and ask for forgiveness, right? Like, so we, I get that. That's a little bit removed from us, but I, I would say the heart behind that really hasn't changed in us. You see, what they were doing is they were recognizing that they had sinned, that they were not perfect according to God's standard. And so they had to do something to kind of make up for it. They had to do something to hold God off. They had to do something to get back into God's favor. And for them, it was the sacrificial system. But for us, I think we do a lot of the same things. Like, have you ever had the thought, like when you feel that guilt, when you know you've done something wrong, or you feel like, man, I just have not been, my relationship with God has not been good so far. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get back into church. I'm going to really take my, you know, faith seriously. Or maybe, man, I'm going I'm to get my butt in a seat on Tuesday night, and I'm going to be here, and I'm going to make some changes. Right? I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start doing this or that. And what we're doing is really we're saying, I know that I've sinned, but maybe if I do some good things, God will have favor again with me. I can kind of hold off God a little bit longer if I just you know, start getting my act together. We may not call it a sacrifice, but it's the same thing that's trying to work ourselves back into the favor of God. Maybe others of you are are more aligned with this, and and when you feel that guilt, you just feel like, man, I just have to punish myself. Like, I have to make myself feel really bad. And sometimes we do this consciously or subconsciously that feel like, man, if I just suffer a while, if I would just recognize that God is really angry at me and wants me to be in pain for a little bit, then maybe he would have favor again and I could move forward. What we're doing is we're trying to offer up these things to God to say, will you just hold off a little bit longer? Will you take me back? Will, can I be brought back in? And what we're trying to do really is appease that guilty conscience that's deep inside of us. You know, it'd be like... Um, if I, uh, if I went home tonight 
and I just kind of lost it on my wife. And I started freaking out. I was yelling at her and I was just, you know, just saying these really mean things or whatever. And I'm just, I mean, just blatant, wicked sin against her. And tomorrow I feel bad. I feel like guilty conscience. And so I go buy flowers and a cup of coffee and I bring that to her and ask her for forgiveness, right? Like, because she's a gracious woman, she would probably forgive me. But just in that, that doesn't make me innocent, I may be forgiven for now from her, but I'm still guilty of that from yesterday, right? Even that, like, appeasing of how I feel and wanting to feel better doesn't take away the guilt that's actually deep inside. You know, even if for us, even if maybe you've actually committed kind of a big crime, maybe you've done something that you've actually had to get, uh, go to court, Maybe you've been given community service or, or a jail sentence. And, and once you complete that, that doesn't mean that you were fully innocent. That means you served your time, but you're still guilty for what you did. Even if you appeased that at the time, there's still a guilt that's actually deep down inside. So there's nothing that we can do that actually takes that away. Uh, last year, I, uh, last summer... I met a guy, and he was uh, from a tribe up in northern Vietnam. And, and this tribe, his parents and grandparents' generation, they, they had never had any Christians come. They were completely unreached, never heard of the Bible, never heard of anything. But he said in their tribe, what they would do is pretty regularly, they would actually sacrifice animals to a deity that they didn't know, but they knew was real. So think about that. They have no contact with the outside world, no idea of the Bible, but they're making these sacrifices because he said they still knew that they had to appease the gods somehow. So it doesn't matter if you're an Old Testament Jew, if, if you're in a tribe out in the jungles, or, or you're here today, we all have this desire that says, man, I know I'm guilty and I need to do something to make up for it. But the problem is the author of Hebrews is going to say, you can't actually solve the main problem. You can maybe appease that guilt for a little bit, but it doesn't take away the fact that you are still guilty before God. He's pointing us to the fact that there had to be a greater sacrifice than anything you could offer, anything you could do, but there had to be a greater blood shed for the cleansing of that conscience inside of us. So read with me as he transitions in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What he's saying here is there was this old way of doing things that was just pointing to something else. These sacrifices, these ways, they were, they were appeasing God's wrath for now. But there was going to come a day when there would be a greater blood shed. That somebody would offer a blood that was actually able to cleanse our conscience. And he says that the day that Christ appeared, 
that this man who came onto the scene, not only is just a man, but as we've seen in Hebrews before, this God, who is fully God and fully man, who came, actually lived the perfect life. He says that he could actually walk into the most holy place, not because he had to sacrifice and cleanse himself. He could waltz right in because he had earned perfection. The only one who could actually stand in the presence of God decided to offer sacrifices on your behalf. For your guilty conscience, the innocent one, didn't shed the blood of a goat and a bull to keep you from feeling God's wrath for a little longer. He actually took the cross and shed his own blood. You see, for, for the eternally guilty, which is all of us, sinning against an eternal God requires an eternal punishment. For the eternally guilty, we needed an eternally innocent blood to be offered on our behalf. Nothing we could do as sinners could appease that. Nothing a, a goat or a bull could do could fully appease that. What those were doing were just pointing to the greater sacrifice that was to come in Jesus. So he came. So he lived this perfect life, earning life. Yet the innocent blood of Jesus was poured out on the cross on your behalf. And he says in verse 14 that that blood, that blood alone can purify our conscience. The guilty record on our behalf that's deep down inside of us can only be purified, can only be cleansed, can only be changed in one way. And he said it is through the spotless blood of Christ. Now, I do want to recognize, uh, if you are maybe new or even if you've been around the church for a while, you hear me say over and over and over again, you know, there had to be blood, there had to be blood, like Jesus had to shed his blood. If we could just be honest, I think in our minds, that's kind of uh, weird, right? Like, I mean, have you ever had the question, like, okay, but why blood? Like, why did he have to shed blood? You know, I was talking to uh, Josh a couple weeks ago about some of the songs that we sing here, and he brought up the idea of, you know, uh, one of my favorite old hymns is There is a Fountain. And he said, you know, I love to play that, but here's the thing. If somebody doesn't know much about Christianity, that sounds really weird, right? Like, let me just read you the first verse. This is just the first verse of this hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Like, if you don't know much about that, I mean, that's weird. Like, I've been a Christian for a few years. That's Actually looking at that is like, that's kind of odd, right? Or we're going to sing a song again at the end here called Nothing But the Blood. And you think about that, and it's, what can wash me clean? The blood, right? Just pour the blood on me. Like it's, oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? Like there's no way that you're covered in blood and that makes you clean and white unless we see this spiritual reality. Why do we sing these kind of weird songs about the blood? Why do I hope that when we sing these songs at the end, you find a a, a preciousness in this? Because we need the blood of Christ to live. That guilty record that each and every one of us carry is only made innocent through the blood. 
Again, if you go all the way back, Leviticus 17.11, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. What he's saying here is, you know, we oftentimes think of blood as like a a scar and, and pain and death maybe. But he's saying, no, 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 blood actually represents life. Like when there's blood pumping, that is as representative of life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says here that atonement comes by blood. The whole sacrificial system was never intended to actually forgive people of their sins. It was just to show them that there was always going to have to be blood. That there had to be blood shed for dead, guilty sinners to find life. The only way a dead soul that we all have in our sin that can be raised to life is to be infused with new blood. The blood is in, or the life is in the blood. And spiritually, we needed an innocent blood to cover our guilty record. That's why we sing about these songs that that we want to be plunged underneath this blood because it does wash us white as snow. Now, to give a a summary of this, I think Kent Hughes, who's a pastor, uh, summarizes this really well. I think we have a slide uh, for this one as well. It's kind of long, but just track with. To summarize this whole section, he says, Of course, the old covenant system was flawed in that, by design, it could only deal with sins of ignorance, could never completely clear one's conscience. But then came Jesus with the new covenant in his own blood, a superior blood sacrifice that completely atoned for sins and completely cleared the conscience. Jesus was no uncomprehending, unwilling animal, but rather a perfect God-man who consciously set his will to atone for our sins. He is therefore a superior savior and priest. The old priesthood was the shadow. He is the substance, cleansing both sin and conscience. There is only one way to clear our conscience, and it's through the blood of Christ. And I want to show you really quickly, don't freak out, Five things that the blood of Christ has done. Now, I'm going to do this in like a couple minutes, so don't freak out. I'm almost done. But just as we walk through this text, he's going to say here that it's Christ's blood that does this. And then he's going to give five things that could be yours that was secured by the blood of Christ. So in our guilty conscience, when we feel uh, the weight of that, when we feel hopelessness, when we feel uh, gross in that, He's going to say there's actually five things here that the blood of Christ can give you as it takes that away. First, look in verse 12. He says that his blood has secured an eternal redemption. Redemption simply means uh, being bought back, being redeemed. And so what this is saying is, hey, you you were enslaved to sin, Satan, death, but that through his blood you're actually bought back eternally. Never to have to be enslaved to that again. Think about that. Eternally redeemed. Number two, he says that he purifies our conscience. Look in verse 14. He says he offered himself to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
So if you think, man, I've been living under the weight of this guilty conscience, if I've had this deep inside, he says that through his blood he has purified that. And I love this. He says he purifies it from the dead works that have caused it to now serve the living God. That this forgiveness, this purification that he offers isn't just a license to say, well, great, everything's forgiven. I can do whatever I want. He says, no, no, no. That blood actually now empowers you to serve God righteously. What you couldn't do before, you now can do only through the blood of Christ. Number three, he says he gives in verse 15 that we receive the promised eternal inheritance. When the Bible talks about this, this is saying that, that Christ, who had everything in heaven, he is the Son of God that he inherits. He's the heir of all things. And it goes on to say, just like a will, that when one dies, what they have, it can be willed to someone else. This is saying that when he died on that cross, and you put your faith in him, that you're united to him, and everything that is his can be yours. All the riches of heaven, all the glory that is his can be yours in Christ. He gives us everything. He doesn't hold back. Ephesians says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Number four, in verse 22, it says, Without blood there is no forgiveness of sin. Therefore, with this blood there is forgiveness of sins. So I want you to hear me tonight. If there is something in your life where you feel like, man, I don't know if I can be forgiven of that. If there's something you're carrying around, I want you to hear this, that through Christ's blood, you can be forgiven of all sins. He goes on to say that there's, there's a sacrifice once and for all. That's it. It's over. There's no more sacrifice needed to be made that you can be fully forgiven of past, present, and future sins with your trust in Christ's shed blood. Number five, lastly, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but here's the last one, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you have put your trust in Christ, as sure as he came once, he is coming again. And on that day, he's not coming to deal with your sin. He's coming to fully save you from all the results, the power, the presence of sin. That all of that is removed on that day. That he's coming back to bring us, his people, back to himself and to usher us into the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Full salvation from guilt, from shame, from the broken effects of this world are gone in Christ. So friends, I, I plead with you. Let us make no more sacrifices. Right? Let us make no more attempts to appease God, no more hoping that he just might take me back if I do enough. No more living under the weight of our sin. This is why we believe in no more sacrifices because of these verses that say it was once for all. It's why we believe that God doesn't put us under any more suffering for these sins for eternity that it is paid. It's why we would argue and say, man, for verses like this, it's why we don't believe in any sort of future uh, cleansing or, or purgatory or anything that we believe this is once for all. You're fully cleansed if you put your faith in Jesus and it is done. It was finished on the cross if your faith is in him. That it was once for all in Jesus. So I would ask, I would plead 
if you are a non-Christian in the room, if you haven't bought into this, if you haven't believed this, but if you can admit that there is a guilt that is inside of you that has to be dealt with, that you would place your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that God came to earth to mediate between you and God to bring you into relationship with him, that he entered into the presence of God, shed his blood so that you could be forgiven, be saved, and one day be brought to home in him. And for Christians in the room, man, would we believe this? Would we buy this? Would we say, man, I get this, that that Christ, I don't need to make any more sacrifices, that Christ did it all for me, and I get to live without the weight of guilt weighing me down. That I can confess, that I can be transparent because it was blood bought and I'm no longer guilty but I'm seen as innocent and that he does empower us to deal with our sins now until one day when there is no more sin. You know in 1 John 1, 9, John writes that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just because of this to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I would pray, man, if we would be, be a people that are confessing, that walk in, in not this weight of guilt, but the freedom that Christ has bought for you. That we would understand that it's not okay to sit in our sin, but we can confess and actually move past it. That God has given us a community to actually speak in, pray in, preach in the gospel to us, to help us, empower us through. And I believe that he actually can bring healing from maybe even scars and guilt and weights that have been there for years. Friends, we all know we have guilt. The question is, how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to walk trying to appease God for just a little bit longer, maybe hoping that someday that guilt will be gone? Or would you bow at the cross of Christ, have his blood cover you, and be spotless? I want to do two things here to end. Um, first, I want to give us just a, a minute or two. I think Josh and the band are going to come up here in a minute. And all I want you to do is, you know, I said, man, whatever, however hard it is, get that guilt kind of out. Whether you're a non-Christian, you just have been living under that guilt. Or whether you're a Christian, but you still have carried some sort of guilt. Or you have set up a sacrificial system in your own mind that we would actually get that out and that we would be able to actually confess that. The band's going to come and they're going to play for just a, a minute or two with no words, no lyrics. And what I want us to do is our staff team is actually going to be in the back. And we would love to just pray with you. That we would follow this. That we would actually confess. That we would pray. And that we would find healing from some of this stuff. Maybe if you're in the room and this is the first time you've ever trusted in Jesus. We want you to confess that, pray with you, and celebrate. And the second thing we're going to do after that is we're going to sing. And we're going to sing because we have reason to sing in the blood of Jesus. And I want us to sing as a people that are rejoicing in this. That no matter where you're at, that we can say, and the blood has covered me. The blood has made me new, has secured my eternal destination, has given me all the riches in Christ. And that one day, because of that blood, we will be with him in the new heavens and new earth for all time. So we take the next couple minutes, think through this, pray through this. Please, if you want, come back um, and, and just talk with us, get prayer, and then let's sing. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you 
that you would send your Son, the heir of all things, to forsake all things. Jesus, that you would leave heaven, come to earth, not to just try to teach us how to get to heaven, but to actually give up the innocent blood that you earned. Father, there is none that is righteous, none that is good. We are all guilty and dead in our sin and need atonement through blood. God, for all of us in the room, would you help us believe this? Would you help us give up ways of trying to make you like us more, trying to free ourselves from guilt, and would we just rest humbly at your cross and know that it is through your blood alone that we can be saved that we can be sustained, that we are forgiven, and that we can walk as innocent ones because of you. Spirit of God, put this into our hearts, put this into our minds. Would we walk differently after tonight, that this wouldn't just be a lesson, but this would actually help change us and transform us. Father God, we love you. We trust in you. We praise you. We do this in Jesus' name.